Today, I'm going to add the final message to the series that I have been in over the last few months. It's a series called Identity and Inheritance. And so today, I'm going to be ministering the final message in this series. It's a message I'm calling, Discover Jesus, Discover You. And what I want us to see through the message today is this. Like Father, like Son, like Jesus, like you. The way one sees God is the way one will see themselves. So if you have a poor image of yourself, don't fall under condemnation. See God differently. See the Father differently. See the workings of the Holy Spirit differently. Because the way you see them is the way you're going to see you. See the Father in all of His goodness and His mercy and His grace and His love. If God is strict and scary to you, then your life will be filled with fear and your life will be filled with rules. That's the strict part. On the other hand, if one sees the Father as loving and gracious and kind, their life will be filled with the same attributes. Love, kindness, grace, mercy will be dispensers of those wonderful attributes that every human being craves. Everybody wants to experience love. That's our greatest need, is to be loved and to know that we're loved. The image you hold of the Father will be the same image that your life will ultimately reflect. And I know that sounds so simple. It's easy to dismiss. But I'm telling you, seeing the Father for who He truly is, changing our mindsets to see Him as always gracious, not just on your best days, always gracious, always loving. Not when you've just had your greatest victories, but even in your defeats. God is just as loving then. Two of the disciples, Thomas and Philip, were with Jesus on one occasion when their curiosities just got the best of them. <laughs> As it is with the majority of uh, adopted children, Thomas and Philip wanted to meet the Father. Can we just see Him? Was their request. We see their petition in the following verse in John chapter 14 and verse 8. The Apostle John wrote these words. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Just let me take a look at this Father you've been talking about. Just let me see Him, and that will be enough. I got a couple questions for you. Enough to satisfy what? That's a good question, isn't it? Enough to satisfy what? 
So you don't have an answer for that, and they didn't either, really, to be honest with you. Enough to satisfy for how long? How long am I going to be satisfied? Again, no one has a satisfactory answer for that question. There have been many times in my life that my eyes were bigger than my stomach. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Come on, help me out here. Don't get religious on me now. My eyes were bigger than my stomach, right? It was like I had never eaten before, right? And I didn't know how much I could take in. And my eyes still sometimes get too big for my stomach, right? There have been times that I have been so miserable, come on now, help me out, that I felt like I was going to explode. Anybody with me? Okay. <laughs> In those moments, I honestly felt like I would probably never eat another bite of food again in my life. But how many of you know, we always get hungry again. Come on. And if Jesus had shown Thomas and Philip, the father, I'm telling you, they would have gotten hungry again. You see, after Jesus was crucified, his disciples could no longer see him. The man that they had walked with for several years, three, three and a half years, the man that they had been walking with, they couldn't see him anymore. What happened to, in particular, Peter, James, and John when they couldn't see Jesus anymore? They got hungry again. And you know what they did? They returned to a life of fishing. Peter said, I'm going fishing. And the other disciples said, we're going with you. Jesus had called them out of fishing. Jesus had called them out of tax collecting. Jesus had called them out of different merchant type trades that they were all involved in. Nobody was unemployed. They were doing stuff now, folks. Jesus didn't just go over to the unemployment office and go, now, <laughs> you got any guys? I'm looking for 12 of them today. We'll, we'll take the 12. No, 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 no. He called them out of their profession. But when they couldn't see Jesus anymore, or we could say it today, when I couldn't sense Jesus anymore, when I couldn't feel Jesus anymore, they went back to what they were familiar with, which was fishing. Jesus has made them into wonderful disciples, but they went back to what they were familiar with. God had commissioned Moses to go to Pharaoh with a message. What was the message that God gave Moses to give to Pharaoh? What was that message? Let my people go so that they might worship me. Not just let them go. Listen, I didn't want to just get let go from my sins. When I got let go from them, I wanted to worship him. And I love worshiping my Lord. He means everything to me. What you see on Sunday morning comes out of Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday's worship and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday morning very early too. I love worshiping Him. 
When God said, go to Pharaoh and give them this message, let my people go so that they might worship me, that message is just as relevant today as it was then. Think about that. It still is relevant today. God, the Father, wants His people to be let go, not just from sin and the, the nonsensical things like that, but I'm talking about anything that troubles your heart. Let them go. But Pharaoh's heart was as stubborn as a rusted bolt. And after the 10th plague, the plague that claimed the life of every firstborn male, Pharaoh reluctantly consented and released the Israelites from their oppression and bondage. Now, he didn't see it that way, but that's what they were under. Friends, believers can get so set in their ways that they too become as stubborn as a rusted bolt. The saturating power of the finished work of grace by faith. It's like WD-40 in that it loosens us from our rusty and oxidized ways of living. Jesus isn't rusty. Jesus isn't oxidized. Jesus isn't stubborn. Jesus isn't in bondage or oppression. Christ is in us the hope of glory. And when you discover Jesus, you'll discover you. See, the church wants you to go on a discovery to discover you. See, you've already discovered him as salvation. No, no. Keep discovering him. Forget about you. Discover him, and in the process, this is how good God is. He says, hey, let me discover how this is affecting you, how I'm affecting you. After more than 400 years of just back-breaking, toiling labor and captivity, you would have thought that the Israelites would have been overwhelmed with gratitude when they had finally been released from their days in Egypt. Wouldn't you have thought so? But that didn't happen. They grumbled and complained all the way to the promised land. Always complaining, always backbiting, always grumbling. Why? Why did they grumble? Why did they complain? Why did they want to kill Moses? They even wanted to kill the deliverer guy. Why did the Israelites want to return to Egypt? First of all, it's because they had become accustomed to living by substance rather than by faith. That's not New Covenant. We live by faith. You see, they had their 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. jobs. Substance. In Egypt, they had their little mud huts, little grass huts, substance. In Egypt, they ate their cornbread, they ate their beans, their fish, their cucumbers, their melons, their leeks, their onions, and their garlic. That's what the scriptures tell us, okay? They had all of that in Egypt. None of their provisions required faith. You see, Pharaoh had to feed them 
Otherwise, they would just die off and you'd have no workers. So it was their working that got them the substance, not faith, their works. In the wilderness, the shelters were few and far between. You have anywhere from 2 million to upwards of 4 million people, men, women, children, animals, everything. The shelters, once in a while, you might have found a little cave or something. There were no gardens out there to pick a head of lettuce from or whatever. There weren't many watering holes either, down in the desert. They had all that back in Egypt, but not in the desert. In the desert, they would have to live by faith. By faith, they would have to move when the pillar of cloud moved. By faith, they would have to stop when the pillar of cloud stood still. The Israelite story was an early type and shadow, one of the earliest ones, of what it means for New Covenant believers to let go of their substance and to live by faith. Don't trust in horses. Don't trust in chariots. Trust in God. It's faith, the Scriptures tell us, that pleases God. Faith pleases God. Now, if I color outside the line, you let me know here, okay? It's faith that pleases God. We can let go of our checklists of do's and don'ts. We can let go of our time cards of punching in and punching out to work throughout the day. We can let go of our familiar doctrines in exchange for a lifestyle of grace by faith alone. I'm talking about the spiritual side of us. I'm talking about the emotional side of us. And that's why Jesus responded to Philip's request the way he did. When Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus responded with the words, If you've seen me, you've seen my Father. Come on, that's what he said. Jesus said, If you've seen me, you've seen my Father. I'm going to tell you on a personal level, I don't need to see Jesus or the Father, the Holy Spirit in physical form. My faith has eyes that are bigger than my stomach. My faith has eyes that satisfy me with the fullness of God's promises. When I think about His promises littered throughout the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, I'm satisfied with the fullness of those promises because I know my Father is a promise keeper. He cannot lie. You see, when I discovered Jesus, I discovered me. When I discovered grace, I discovered rest. I left behind the land of Egypt to be free to worship my Father. There's nothing left to go back to. There's nothing there. Jesus has the words of eternal life, and those are the words I live by. The substance of Egypt was left behind. The Israelites would have to learn to live by faith. They didn't do a very good job, did they? Look at the miracles Moses began to do. I mean, the parting of the Red Sea alone. That's a pretty astounding miracle when you think about it, isn't it? 
A towering wall to the left. A towering wall to the right. Dry ground between the towering walls. And they stayed up long enough for all of the Israelites to come through. All the animals to come through. But yet when the Egyptian soldiers tried to come through and Pharaoh, the walls came crashing down. That alone, you would think, would increase your faith. I mean, it would just be off the chart, wouldn't it? Come on. But they got hungry again. Moses just said, I just showed you the Father. Didn't you just see what he did? Why are you hungry again? Begging me to spank a rock. Okay, come on, stop that. The scriptures tell us that faith is the substance. Come on. Faith is the substance. Not materialistic things. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Faith carries with it the ability to satisfy. I am satisfied. I'm not missing anything. There's nothing left on my bucket list, okay? My heart is satisfied. If my life ended today, my heart is satisfied. Why? Because I'm full of faith. I'm full of grace. Full of God. I'm full of Christ. I'm full of the Holy Spirit. If the currency of the new covenant is faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and it is, then that means we don't have to see to believe. We don't have to see to believe. And we don't have to see to be satisfied. Boy, that would help on the grocery bill, wouldn't it? (laughs) That would really help on the grocery bill. If I did have to see to be satisfied, because once I see, it's over with, you know? (laughs) Multiplied millions of people, think about this now, can take you to within probably a few feet of where they were standing or sitting when the news broke regarding the day the World Trade Centers fell to the ground. Can you see that in your mind? I know where I was at. The Twin Towers were erased from the Manhattan skyline with a deafening roar. In just a moment of time. The rubble at ground zero has long been removed. The rubble at ground zero has been taken away. But that historic event will never be erased from our history. Now, worldwide, since that fateful day, there have been over 3 billion children that have been born. How ludicrous would it be for any one of those three billion people to say they don't believe that that actually happened? You know why? Because I wasn't there. I wasn't present. And the evidence has been removed. In the same manner, Jesus' blood-soaked, life-giving cross, in the physical sense, has turned to dust. The wood 
and the nails and the blood and the sweat and Christ's DNA have returned to the earth. But the effects, come on, the effects of the cross are historic and will live forevermore. The fact that no human being that is currently alive was present when Jesus was crucified does not change the truth that Jesus shed his precious blood. What did he have in mind when he shed his blood? Was it just to establish another religion? No, it wasn't that. Was it a supplemental policy to Medicare Part A and Part B? No, it wasn't that either. Come on. He shed his blood so that humanity could be loosed from the bondage of Egypt and walk into their true inheritance, walk into their true identity in the promised land. He shed his blood so that all mankind would enter into his kingdom. Jesus shed his blood to redeem us from our empty ways of life. I don't know about you, I had some empty ways of life before Jesus. Christ shed his precious blood to give us a new covenant, a better covenant, one that operates by grace through faith so that nobody can be disqualified. Everybody is welcome. Not one of you today that are here needs to meet the architect or the general contractor or the blue-collar workers, the laborers who built the building we are seated in this morning to validate that there was a builder. The building itself testifies to the fact there was a builder. There's order. There had to be a creator. There had to be a builder. God is a God of order. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10, we find these words. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. I used to drive truck. Jean, she drives people around. Gene, I probably know the answer to this question, but uh, it is best to know where you're going, isn't it? It helps. <laughs> it helps to know where you're going. But Abraham, by faith, he didn't need the substance. He didn't need the map. Give me the map. No, by faith. Give me the contract, God. No, by faith. He heard the voice of God. He must have heard the voice of God. And by faith, he stepped out. Wait a minute now, come on. You say, what was the main difference between Abraham and the Israelites? Both Abraham and the Israelites journeyed to a foreign land that they've got in common. Both lived in tents. They all pitched tents. Neither Abraham nor the Israelites knew where they were going. That's about right. They were in a foreign territory. The difference between Abraham and the Israelites is Abraham relied on faith. The Israelites wanted substance. They were so caught up in that mindset. Next scripture. And then it says, by faith, 
he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Friends, look around you sometimes. You talk about increasing your faith. You don't need just wild and crazy type miracles to happen. Look around and see the awesomeness of God. That's a faith builder. Reflect upon what he's done for you. Reflect upon the places he's taken you and reflect upon the situations he's brought you through. God is the architect and the builder of the new covenant of grace. The most costly blueprints ever drafted were Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Costly blueprints! God reached back to a man named Abraham and patterned the new covenant after the covenant he made with Abraham. The covenant of grace was patterned after Abraham's covenant. By faith, Abraham was declared righteous. Abraham believed, or another way to say it, Abraham trusted in God. And the scriptures tell us, and righteousness was credited unto him. Just by faith. The law was not Abraham's helper. The law didn't exist. The law would come hundreds of years later through Moses when he delivered the Israelites from bondage. So Abraham lived before the law, so the law was not Abraham's helper. Faith was his helper. The new covenant of grace is patterned after this great man named Abraham. The entirety of the Mosaic covenant of law, how many of you know, was fulfilled in Christ? In Christ, the law is not our helper. We need to quit concentrating on rules and laws. Look, get a picture of the Father. Get a picture of His loving kindness and His mercy. You won't even be thinking about laws. You'll just begin to operate in love and mercy and kindness and grace, compassion. In Christ, the law is not our helper. Then what is our helper? Come on. Holy Spirit! Isn't that what Jesus said? I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He's going to be your helper. He's our helper. We don't have two helpers. Holy Spirit never goes on vacation, never takes a day off, always there, 24-7, always helping us. The Holy Spirit is our helper. Believers are dead to the law. We are no longer under the law. We are free from the law. We have been redeemed from the curse of the law. And Christ is the end of the law for all those who believe. You say, Pastor Mark, how do I rid myself of a lifetime of secondhand smoke? Come on. Smoke that continues to billow from my sacrificial lambs that I've been burning throughout my life. I'm talking about smoke that is equally harmful to 
a believer as it is to an unbeliever, not in our spirits, but in our souls. How do I distance myself from the effects of all this erroneous programming? I've had to ask these questions. How do I shed the do more, be more, get more, and give more mentality? How do the twin towers of thou shall and thou shalt not fall into the ground? How do I get there? How do I avoid relying on my emotions as my motivational speaker? Oh, because they like to talk a lot, don't they? They try to stimulate you, motivate you. No, no! You have to have truth in place. So when those emotions try to color outside the line, and they don't do it in bad ways, they try to do it in helpful ways. The Holy Spirit is our helper. He's our helper. Listen to His voice. He's always right. How do I morph? How do I transition from a Saul to a Paul? That's one of the greatest stories in the Bible. I mean, you talk about God's mercy and grace, a man who's killing Christians because the Scriptures say they belong to the way, capital W. They belong to the way. And he would go find them and drag them out of their homes, have them stand on trial and kill them. So how do I transition? How do I go from a Saul to a Paul? You do exactly what the Apostle Paul did. Discover Jesus. Discover you. When Saul discovered Jesus on the road to Damascus, Saul didn't only discover Jesus. But Saul discovered Paul. Jesus was his true identity. Jesus was his true inheritance. In John chapter 14, verses 8 through 10, we revisit that conversation between Philip and Thomas and Jesus. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, how dare you say, show us the Father? Next scripture. And then Jesus said, Don't you believe that I am in the Father? and the Father is in me, the same way Jesus is in you and you're in Christ? Do you kind of get the connection here now, right? Jesus said, The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. What was Jesus saying when He said, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. What are you talking about, Jesus? He was letting Thomas and Philip know that he and the Father are one. Come on, one. One in spirit, one in nature, one in character, one in love, one in heart. 
Jesus was and is and will always be the bodily manifestation of God himself. Jesus is in heaven as not only God, but Jesus is sitting there as a man. He didn't lose his manhood. He had a glorified, resurrected body. Jesus is still a man. In other words, Jesus told Philip and Thomas that there was nothing to discover about God that couldn't be discovered in him. That's what Jesus was saying. In other words, he was saying, Thomas, come on, Philip, just discover me. And you'll quit asking those kind of questions. Discover me and you'll discover my Father. We're identical. I'm just a human manifestation of my Father. The Father is rich in mercy, Philip. The Father is rich in mercy, Thomas, and so am I. The Father is patient and kind, and so am I. The Father is thoughtful and kind-hearted, and so am I. The Father is powerful and ever-present, and so am I. The Father is loving and gracious and forgiving and generous, and so am I. Jesus meant it when he said, anyone who has seen me has seen my Father. I'm an exact representation of my Father. Come on, folks, we got it made. We got it made. The God I'm talking about lives on the inside of you. He lives on the inside of me. We're more powerful more passionate than what we know. Stir that up. When the Apostle Paul told Timothy to stir up the gift on the inside of you, Timothy, he was basically saying, Timothy, it's not like alphabet soup that you just stir the whole thing up. No, no, Timothy, stir up your revelation that I've taught you about Christ and about the Father. Stir that revelation up because you're going to need it, Timothy, as you preach, as you go, and you have to be merciful to people. You have to treat people with kindness and don't treat you good, Timothy. I know, I've been there, Timothy. Apostle Paul's writing his very last letters. He's writing them to his protege, Timothy. His life is ebbing and flowing, coming and going. It's about to end. And he's saying, Timothy, stir up the gift. You're going to need it. The gift is the revelation of the goodness of God. That's the gift on the inside of us. I'm sure that it won't come as a surprise when I tell you that the overwhelming majority of adoptees eventually want to meet their biological parents. You see, like Thomas and like Philip, the adoptees cry, show us the Father. Is it plain old curiosity? Or is it a quest to discover something deeper? Study have revealed the two main reasons why adoptees want to meet their biological, the majority want to meet their biological parents. 72% want to know why they were placed for adoption. And 94% of them want to know, do I resemble my mother or my father the most? 
You see, they've got an identity crisis in a sense. And they want to know. And because of flawed, skewed, intermittent, if you will, behavior, many believers, they long to know how the Father could adopt them as sons and daughters. Many believers want to know, do I resemble my Father? Do I really look like Jesus? To the Father you do, and that's all that counts. You'd look just like His Son. You see, babies are not adopted because we're anticipating perfect behavior from that little guy or that little girl. We adopt because God has programmed our hearts with an innate love that yearns to be shared. So if we're having trouble having children, there's something on the inside that says, there's something in me that needs to share this. It's the same thing God did. There's something on the inside of me. I want to share this. God did not create us so that we could just be worshipers of Him. I've said it before. He has angels to do that. God created humanity because of this innate love. God is love, and God wanted to share this awesome love and compassion and mercy and grace with people. Did you know that there have been non-swimmers who have drowned in water that wasn't even over their head? I have swam enough in swimming pools and rivers and lakes, and I've seen people that couldn't swim very well at all, and I've seen people that couldn't swim at all. And there is sheer terror when they fall into deep water. I mean, absolute panic. You say, how though, Mark? How could they drown in water that's not over their head? You see, when these non-swimmers slipped into the water, they struggled so hard, they flailed, they fought so hard to keep their head above water, their nostrils above water, that they wore themselves out and ultimately submitted to the overpowering fear that was taking place in their heart, never realizing that all they had to have done in that moment was just stand up. And then just walk right out of the pool, walk right out of the river, walk right out of the lake. The body of Christ needlessly struggles in water which is not even over our head. They struggle because they do not believe that they look like the Father. They have never heard the message like Father, like Son. They have never embraced the words, as He is, so are you in this world. Many have never been introduced to the truth that their sin can never separate them from the love of God. People don't believe that. Because of fear and exhaustion, many non-swimmers, you know what happens when they're drowning? They cannot even call for help. Their diaphragm, everything just restricts. They're in such sheer panic that they can't even cry for help. They don't reach for rescue equipment that's nearby because they're just, their mind has went blank. All they're trying is one thing, keep my nose and my mouth above water. There can be swimmers nearby 
and they're not even alerted as people are going under just a few feet away from them. Instead, they drown quickly and silently. In the same manner, many believers drown quickly and silently even when they're within reach of the life buoy of the finished work of grace, never discovering that they are as secure as Jesus Himself. You're just as secure. As you recall, two weeks ago, I went to Louisville, Kentucky. I was there for a week. I was at a trade show there. It's the National Farm Machinery Show. We go there with my company every year, and there are hundreds of thousands of agriculture or farmers that come through, their families. It's beautiful to see. I mean, the heartland of people, the people that work the hardest, I mean, they are there, hundreds of thousands of them. And we're an exhibitor there. And on one occasion, I was having a conversation with a dairy farmer, and I asked him, I said, now what exactly is it that cows eat? I'm just curious. I see him grazing in the field, but what exactly is it that they eat? And he went through this very short list of things they eat. And then he said to me, would you like to know why they never get tired of eating the few things they eat? I said, yes, I'd like to know why. He said, because they don't realize there's anything else to eat. I thought, wow, how powerful is that? They're oblivious. They don't even know there's anything else to eat, so they're just satisfied with that. Friends, if that's not church doctrine for you, I don't know what it is. They just get satisfied because they don't know there's other things to eat. For the first 15 years of my Christian walk, I was stuck in an identity of servanthood more than an identity of sonship. My default was servant. Not so much son. I believe that my inheritance was hinged upon whether or not I endured to the end, and that hinge did its share of creaking. I was flailing in water that wasn't even over my head. I was silently drowning, and people were nearby. Would you like to know why I struggled needlessly? Because, like a cow, I didn't know there was anything else to eat other than the mixture gospel that I had been served. That's what my feeding trough was always filled with, with just a mixture gospel. Now, for the last 14 years, I have been discovering what Ezekiel had discovered when he ate the scroll that God had prepared for him to eat. I discovered that the gospel of grace and the finished work of Jesus Christ tasted as sweet as honey in the mouth. That's what Ezekiel said when he ate the scroll. He said, hey, I thought that was going to taste like cardboard, leather, but it's sweet as honey in my mouth. I found something new to eat on. Whether a person is saved or unsaved, a pastor or a parishioner, a lifeguard or a non-swimmer, the Scriptures compel us to discover Jesus. Discover Him. Everybody needs Jesus. 
And everybody needs more of a revelation of the goodness of God. Discovering Jesus loosens us from the rusted bolts and the creaky hinges of religion and redeems us from the empty ways of life handed down to us from the pulpits of the mainline denominations. Discovering Jesus draws us into a victorious and meaningful relationship whereby the Father plants His flag of His love and acceptance into the soil of our hearts. The Father has planted His flag in our hearts to signify that He loves us, to signify that we are His. When Jesus' cross was planted into a hole that was dug atop Mount Calvary, He had more in mind than commemorating a 33-and-a-half-year journey on the earth. Jesus' cross was planted into the ground soil so that He could reconcile the soil of man's fallen heart back to His Father. That's what He had in mind. He planted His cross so that the flag of triumphant grace and the banner of celebratory innocence could wave in exaltation to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lamb without blemish and without defect. We see that truth in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. This is what Peter wrote. He said, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life. Remember what he said. It wasn't silver or gold now redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. I love that scripture. That's how we've been redeemed. The precious metals didn't do it. The precious blood did. Come on. In the desert, the Israelites fashioned a calf from the gold they had plundered from Egypt. But they learned very quickly that gold was not their salvation. That calf couldn't save them. That was not their salvation. The beggar who was laid daily at Gate Beautiful with his tin cup rattling, begging for alms, 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 alms. When Peter And John went in to pray that afternoon. They saw him, and he begged them for money. Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name, come on, in the name. That's the intangible, okay? The name. It's going to require faith. These coins are not going to get you out of your situation. It's going to require faith in that name. He said, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. You know the rest of the story. He went running and leaping and praising God and joined them in the prayer meeting. Beautiful story there. He needed more than WD-40 for his rusted and creaky limbs, the limbs that had atrophied over the years. WD-40 wasn't going to help him, friends. He needed the precious name of Jesus. 
Faith, come on, faith in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Faith in the Lamb without blemish or defect. That was the only way to his salvation. Him being healed is a picture of our salvation. Crippled we were at one time. Beggars at one time. Outside of the temple. Outside of the spiritual realm. And he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. What do I mean when I say the Father has planted a flag in our hearts? A flag is a banner. Banners represent something or someone special. Banners speak of ownership and citizenship and relationship. Banners testify to identity. Do you know there's no country that bears the exact same flag that we bear? The same flag that we fly. Everybody has their own identity. Banners speak of identity. But most of all, banners speak of love. As Americans, we don't fly our flags and wave our banners just to let our neighbors know that we're Americans. They know that part. We fly our flags, we wave our banners because of the love we have for our country. A country without people is no country at all. When we fly our banner, when we fly our flag, what we're saying is, I love people! Now what would be the point if you were the only person on a desert island to fly your flag? What are you commemorating? God planted His flag into our heart to say, I love people! I love my kids! I love my children! I love the nations. It's a sobering thought. There's not a person on the planet that God loves less than you. Or God loves more than you. Some of the most vile, wicked people that are on the planet, you say, God, come on. Surely, I'm a little bit higher, right? No. He loves us all the same. Unconditional love. Extravagant love. Overflowing love. Abundant love. Song of Solomon waves a banner that is unparalleled and unrivaled throughout the Old Testament. Song of Solomon is a journal that contains and captures the extreme and thrilling love between a man and a woman. Each of them waves their banners high. Boy, they're just flying. And all they can do is say good things to one another. They never criticize one another. They're never mean to one another. They never try to drown one another. They never spew secondhand smoke in the form of harmful words at one another. Rather, their words edify. Their words build up. Their words arouse one another. They're never cold. They're never distant. They're never indifferent to one another. Song of Solomon is poetic. It's romantic. It's alluring. And it's a captivating book. I'd encourage you to go read it sometime. And the next time you sit down and you begin to read that, you might want to, uh, you know, uh, make sure you're reading it along because it's going to make you blush a little bit. There's some parts in there that are going to make you blush a little bit. But next time you read the Song of Solomon, I want you to go on a discovery. A discovery. See 
for yourself that it's so much more than a journal, a diary about boy meets girl. Song of Solomon, come on. It's an allegory. It's a picture of Christ lovingly, romantically, relentlessly pursuing his bride with much goodness and such love. It's about a husband and bride who are continuously discovering and rediscovering one another. It chronicles the words from a bride whose vital signs are off the chart. They are skyrocketing. Her pulse is racing. Her palms are sweaty. Her blood sugar is alarmingly high because of his sweet kisses. And her heart is consumed with the passions of her lover. Song of Solomon is so much more than what you would find on the History Channel. Song of Solomon can be found on the Discovery Channel, though that's where you'll find it. As Song of Solomon opens, we find an unnamed bride with an intermittent identity. One moment she knows exactly who she is, and the next moment she's a little confused. She's a little mixed up, if you will. One day she's an Olympic swimmer, and the next day she finds herself drowning in a poor image of herself. It's the same problem that the body of Christ has been dealing with for generations. You know that old song, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. I'm dark, yet lovely. Those are her words. Friends, when you discover Jesus, you'll discover you. You'll discover that the Father can restore your weather-beaten thoughts, feelings, and emotions while softening your outer beauty's images. You'll discover that His banner over you really is love and that you are as innocent as a dove. When you discover Jesus, you'll discover you. You'll discover that even your scars are beautiful. In Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verses 2 through 6, from the message paraphrase, we find these words. <laughs> this is the woman talking now. She says, kiss me. Full on my mouth. No pecks on the cheek here now. No little nibbles on the neck. No, you kiss me square. Dab on my lips. Right on my mouth. Then she says, for your love. Come on. Your love is better than wine. Headier than your aromatic oils. The syllables of your name. Oh, that got me so happy when I saw that last night. The syllables of your name. Jesus Yahweh, the syllables of your name. Remember, this is an allegory here. This is a picture of Christ relentlessly pursuing and romantically loving his bride. She said, your name, <laughs> the syllables of your name murmur like a meadow brook. Oh, no wonder everyone loves to say your name. Take me away with you. Let's run off together in elopement with my king lover. Isn't that funny? Next scripture. 
She says, we'll celebrate. That's good. We'll sing and we'll make great music. Yes, for your love is better than vintage wine. We're talking 100-year-old wine, 200-year-old wine, 300-year-old, stuff you pay a fortune for. She said, it's better than vintage wine. Everyone loves you, of course, and why not? And then look what she says next. She says, I am weathered, but still elegant. Come on, friends. If your past is bugging you a little bit, if you've got some weather check moments from your past, get over it, friends, and see that even though you are weathered, you are still elegant in his eyes. She knows that. She says, I am weathered, but still elegant. Oh, dear sisters in Jerusalem, weather darkened like Kadar desert tents, time softened like Solomon's temple hangings. And then here's what she says. Don't look down on me because I'm dark. Darkened by the sun's harsh rays. My brothers ridiculed me and sent me to work in the fields. They made me care for the face of the earth. <laughs> look what she says. But I had no time to care for my own face. Sometimes life gets a little busy. I understand it. I work a full-time job. I have a wife. I have five children and eight grandchildren. I have a dog. I have a yard. I have a home to take care of. I understand it. Life gets a little busy. I'm busy taking care of other people's fields and, and faces. I'm, sometimes I go, I ain't looked at my own face in a while. So what? If you said to me, Mark Testerman, you have to walk away from sharing the gospel, that's one option. Or you have to walk away from ever seeing your face in another mirror the rest of your life. I'd say, goodbye mirror. I'll just get Valerie to tell me what I look like. I say, Valerie, how am I looking today? She never lies. She'll tell me the truth, right? She says, don't look down on me because I'm dark. Friends, people look down on people because they have dark corners sometime of their life. They don't think exactly like you. They have mentalities and philosophies. You go, oh, dark. You start looking down on people. She's been used to it. That's why she's saying it. She's been used to people looking down on her, saying things to her, ridiculing her, she said. She said her own brothers, look at that, her own brothers ridiculed her. I'm telling you what. The most ridicule I've ever seen since I've been a believer has come from my own brothers in Christ. Not the unbelievers. And that's okay, I can take it, okay? They'll take a message like this and say, you're leading people straight to hell with this message. I don't understand that mentality, friends. I'm preaching about how good God is and how He has done everything for you. I don't understand it. The Shulamite woman's image of herself is an all-too-common image that is pervasive within the body of Christ. Her story is a mixture of erosion and elegance, celebration and condemnation, rejoicing and ridicule. So don't think it's strange when everything doesn't go exactly your way. It's been going on for a long time. The mixture of law and grace will keep a believer trapped 
between the perceptions of weather darkened and time softened. And this is why I preach the message, discover Jesus, discover you. In Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 6, again, we find these words. It says, do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. This is another version. She said, my mother's sons. She's so ticked off, she won't even call them her brothers. <laughs> she said, my mom's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I have neglected. I've come to the point in life where I'm so confident in Christ that if I never turn another page in my vineyard, in my Bible, I'm still fine. I love His Word. I love meditating on His Word. But whether I do this or not, I'm telling you, I'm still His. He has planted His flag in my heart. When I read the first entries of what I would call kind of her diary and the opinion she held of herself, what I wanted to see is she said all these things now. How is her lover going to respond? Now, remember, her lover is a picture of Christ. How is her lover, the type and shadow of Jesus Christ, going to respond to all that stuff she just said? When she said, don't stare at me because I am dark, what is his response? Will he forsake her? Will he just say, you need to get your act together and then give me a call? No. Will he leave her? Will he abandon her? Well, let's find out because let's just move up into his turn to talk. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 15. <laughs> Look what he says. He says, how beautiful you are! Come on. There is not a day that goes by I don't tell my wife how beautiful she is. Not one day. All the time. Honey, I love you. You're so beautiful to me. This is how he responds. In a time where she's having a little rough time. Don't look at me because I'm dark. My brothers, my mother's sons made me work in their vineyards. My vineyards are a mess. And he says, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Her lover does not reprove her for the way she sees herself or for her ministry to her family, even though her own vineyards have been neglected, there is therefore now no condemnation. Throughout Song of Solomon, he refers to his bride as sweet. He uses words like delightful and pleasing and graceful and flawless and perfect. These are the names he pins on her. He actually calls her these things. On two occasions, he says, she has stolen my heart. On three occasions, he says, she is lovely. And then on nine occasions, he calls her beautiful. In other words, our opinions of ourselves do not change our lover Jesus' opinion of us. She said, I'm dark. He said, no, you're lovely. 
She said, I'm dark. He said, no, you're perfect. I love my steak well done. No problem. Nice and dark. It's fine. After he establishes her true identity, then the Shulamite woman's image or opinion of herself begins to change. And your opinion of yourself will also change. You see, as you discover Jesus, you'll discover you. In Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 1, look what she says. This is her talking now. She says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. I remember singing that song from a child in my church. Do you remember singing that song, Lily of the Valleys? Yeah, Rose of Sharon. Oh, we used to sing these songs, friends, in our church. Suddenly, after he's gotten through going through this list, you're beautiful, you're flawless, you're perfect. I love you just the way you are. She says, I am a rose. A rose speaks of love. When you give someone roses, you're saying, I love you. No other woman gets roses from me. Okay, roses are reserved for Valerie. Doesn't mean I don't love you, but they have a special meaning to them. And this woman finally got the revelation. He loves me just the way I am. She's able to say, I am a rose. That means I'm love. And she says, I'm a lily of the valley. And the lily speaks of innocence. She has finally awakened to her true identity that she is loved and that she is innocent. This is the way the body of Christ should see themselves. They're loved deeply. They're innocent in his eyes. She has awakened to the truth that she's loved and she's innocent, even on those occasions when she feels so dark. Where did she get the revelation? Come on, ask yourself that question. Where did she get the revelation that she was the rose? Where did she get the revelation that she was the lily? from her lover. Discover Jesus, discover you. We get that revelation from Christ. We look into his darling eyes. She didn't get it from her brothers. They were mean to her. She didn't get it from her mama. She didn't straighten the boys out, right? She didn't get it from working in the vineyards. Her own vineyard was a mess. She got it from him. She got it from her lover. He's the one who told her she was all of those things. Friends, criticize the message of grace if you want to, but that is what grace will do for you. It will remind you over and over again that you're delightful, you're flawless, you're perfect, you're altogether lovely, you're loved and you're innocent. Next scripture. Now we'll pick up verse 2. She says, I am a rose of Sharon and a lily of the valleys. And then she says, like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. In other words, she's saying, you stand out. You're different. You're unique. You stand out. I can see you. And then we move into verse 4, Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 4. 
and I love this one. There's a song for this one too. He has brought me to his banqueting table and his banner over me is up. Oh, the flag is back out. The banner's back out. It's time to celebrate. Welcome home. Come on, enjoy. The banner's back out. Jesus has planted his flag into our hearts to signify that we are someone special in his eyes. His banner speaks of ceremony and grace, covenant and innocence. His banner speaks of ownership and citizenship and relationship. His banner speaks of identity, but most of all, his banner speaks of love. That's why it says, his banner over me is love. I'm talking about a love that was first demonstrated for us while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. A love that God poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. The revelation of our innocence is that God has made provision for sin, not permission to sin. No, He has not given us permission. He's given us provision. Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, the one without defect, the one without flaw. That's our provision. He's our provision. You want substance? Christ. But you access Him by faith. This gift came with much goodness and such love. Jesus sees his bride as the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. In fact, he says, like a lily among thorns is my darling among young women. Jesus says, that one belongs to me. We stand out, friends. God is planting an image in our hearts of a lily among thorns. What is he saying? He is saying, I know you. You stand out. He is saying we are beautiful even when we are surrounded by thorns. Even on the occasions where we've blown it. Even when others have cast you aside. He still calls you pleasing. He calls you flawless. He still calls us delightful and beautiful, and He still loves us. Friends, there are going to be days when we feel like a lily among thorns. Days when we think, God, how can you love me when I'm surrounded by thorns and thistles? How can you separate the erosion from the elegance? I'll tell you how. Because He's a faithful friend. He doesn't know how to stop loving you. When my first son, Tyler, was born, I had no frame of reference to attach my emotions to. Come on, dream back, folks, to your first child one time. Quite frankly, I was a bit surprised by how suddenly that little man had hijacked my heart, and he instantly became the apple of my eye. I would have laid my life down for him a million times over. Everything in me was captivated by my son's complete innocence. You could say it like this. He had stolen my heart. This is how Solomon felt 
about the weather-beaten Shulamite woman. And this is how the Father feels about us. Last scripture. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, in verse 9. This is what he says to her. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. And as I was thinking about Solomon's story this morning, the song that Joanne McFadder recorded many, many years ago called Altogether Lovely came to my heart. And it's based upon the Song of Solomon. I heard the sound of lovers singing and I wondered at their song, hopelessly lost in each other, gazes locked for so long. I longed to know what they knew, but then I caught a glimpse of you. Now I can't believe I love you so. How was I to know? You were altogether lovely, and that is why I love you so. You are altogether lovely. How was I to know? Friends, as the cataracts of performance based Christianity are replaced with the intraocular lenses of the finished work of Jesus Christ, our hearts will elope with King Lover. Complete innocence is a message that offends the religious, but it liberates those who have been busy working for their salvation and they haven't even taken the time to care for their own face. We have made having a relationship with the Father far too complicated, when all the while it was as simple as discover Jesus, discover you. How was I to know? Father, thank you so much for this series as it closes today. I pray, Father, that people will discover Jesus. That we understand that we've been chasing the substance too long. The golden calves and the tin cups. When all along it was in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise up. And as we rise, we understand our true identity. And we understand and appreciate our true inheritance. That we didn't make any of this happen ourselves. We receive it all by grace through faith. That is my image. And Father, on those occasions, when we feel so dark, we feel so distant. Let the sounds from the Shulamite woman's lover ring in our hearts. Let Jesus' words ring in our heart. You are altogether lovely. That is why I love you so. You are altogether lovely. And now you know.
In Jesus' name, amen. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 833-632-1315, or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.